Greyhound to trap one. Is that you, Yates? Where are you? Welcome to Track One. My name is Mark McManus. This week I'm delighted to welcome Jason McLaughlin back to the podcast. Hello there, great to be back. So this is going to be the fourth episode of the Chris Chibnall Retrospective. We're going to be uh, watching Dinosaurs on a Spaceship today. This is past season, the very short season 7A, uh, where we, in 2012, we only got five episodes. Is this, this a series that you go back to? Is, uh, what, are your, what are your thoughts on it? To be fair, I've not watched it for quite a while. Um, I have... I do know this episode quite well, though, because um, having uh, a son, um, I mean, he's seven now, but around about the time that this came out, he was, um, it was probably about a year later once it had come out on Blu-ray, he was going into his dinosaur phase. Cool. So, as all kids do, um, they absolutely love anything to do with dinosaurs, and this episode... And the John Pertwee story, Invasion of the Dinosaurs, which is yeah. actually my favourite Pertwee stories, were on repeat quite a lot. <laughs> yeah. The mini Moffat um, season seven kind of thing was like his um, big kind of like high concept movie poster mini season, wasn't it, that he uh, came up with? Yeah, it had real kind of scope, didn't it? Real, real kind of sense of scale to it. The... Um... They really shot for that kind of movie look. They said the posters that they released every week to go along with it. Um, yeah, like with cast listings at the bottom and stuff like that, weren't they? They were designed that way. Yeah. I think my favourite is Asylum of the Daleks, but um, Dinosaurs in a Spaceship is my second favourite. And I think probably my favourite Chibnall script to date. Um, yeah, I mean... Looking back on his stories, and I have been obviously just kind of like, 42 was always kind of like my favourite of his, just kind of like, because I like the fact that it was, it took that 24th element of being done in real time. Um, but I did actually, um, with this little mini series, I really enjoyed Power of Free. Uh, I thought that did a very, very good job of showing, like, kind of like the doctor in a normal circumstances, living with Rory and Amy, and the mystery of the cubes. But then it kind of like, which is a common fault with, I think, a, a lot of the Chibnall episodes that he's written, it does fall apart and it's rushed in the last five minutes with a very quick resolution. Whether that's a fault of the format, whether that's something that Chibnall's looking into, because I know they're looking at longer episodes, aren't they? The 50-minute episodes for yeah. Series 11. Um, whether that's something that he was obviously concerned about. Um, I think the only story that kind of like flows is these two parts that he did with um, in Series 5 with the Silurians. Yeah, the Hungry Earth and Cold Blood. Yeah, Diamond. Was on a spaceship. It's a great, it's a great like kind of like throwaway adventure, but it's never going to be a classic. But it kind of suffers from that kind of like perhaps if it had been given about fifteen minutes longer, it might have been like not as rushed or or like like a lot of some some of the uh, episodes do something like come across. It's very much set up, set up, set up, and then it's like oh, we wrap it all up in the last five minutes. Yeah. I'd agree about the power of three. Um, I'll be talking about that in a couple of weeks, but 
it is it's a great like you say the setup's great the mystery of, of what the cubes are and what they want um but mm. there's just something quite unsatisfying about that they've just been looking for a weakness um because like there's tons of human weaknesses it could have <laughs> you'd think if they were that advanced they could have uh, had it sussed in about two minutes flat yeah, and exactly, and they just kind of like give like, is it like a third of the population a heart attack? Yeah. One of the good things besides obviously the living with Rory and Amy aspect of it is that um, it gave us another shot of um, Rory's dad who obviously gets introduced in this episode. It was a great casting coup yeah. for the show because Mark Williams is, is brilliant in anything. Um, but it also um, introduced us to the new uh, version of Unit, didn't it, with... Um, you know, Kate Lethbridge-Stewart. Yeah, that's her first appearance, isn't it? And then um, and then we got Osgood in Day of the Doctor. That's right, yeah. So, I mean, it's kind of like, I like the fact that they reintroduced that into the show. So, yeah, um, yeah I'll be looking forward to your uh, um, your podcast on Power Free because uh, besides the ending, I think that's probably Chibnall's strongest script. Mm. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm keen to go back to it after after a few years. Uh, be be interesting. Yeah, it was nice to have a unit, like a regular unit cast back, wasn't it? After we'd had kind of um, one-offs in the Russell T Davies era. Yeah. Um, you had a few different kind of uh, personnel. Yeah, that that was good to get the uh, get a regular regular cast back. So and obviously yeah. with uh, Nicholas Courtney not like being in the best of health, it was always like, oh well, the Brigadiers in Peru, isn't it? And yeah. Unfortunately, he'd pass away in two thousand and eleven. Yeah, it's a huge shame that wasn't it. He was, um, <clears throat> I think he was originally going to be in a couple of Sarah Jane adventures with the Doctor. Cause there's the one, is it the wedding of Sarah Jane, where David Tennant's in it? Yeah, he was meant to be there as a guest, wasn't he? Yeah, but he was he was too ill, and then same thing again. He was going to be in Death of the Doctor uh, with Matt Smith, and again was was too ill. Um, but that way, it would have been lovely to. Uh, to have the the new doctors Sarah Jane and the Brigadier all together. Yeah, it's, it's kind of like just a little bit of a missed opportunity that they managed to get him back in the Sarah Jane adventures. Yeah, um, but he just wasn't available to come back for the actual series itself. It would have been great to see one of the the modern doctors meet the Brigadier. Yeah, definitely. So uh, before this episode. Um, Couple of things we've had in the last week or so. Um, well, Jordy Wick has given an interview in the Sunday Times magazine, um, which gives like virtually absolutely nothing away about um, the new series. Um, but meanwhile, Christopher Eccleston has, has probably given away more than he ever has um, in an interview about why he, <laughs> yeah. he left the series. Um, been kind of fairly tight-lipped over the last sort of twelve years or so, whatever it's been, twelve, thirteen years. The only thing he kind of like alluded to in more recent um, interviews before this one was that he didn't, he always said something like he didn't like the culture that was happened on the show and he, he was, wasn't liking how it was being produced or he wasn't liking how um, his fellow, um, you know, people, production people on the show were being treated. So he was very guarded with comments previously, but then he seems to have kind of like put the boot in a bit uh, this time round. Yeah, it, it suggests in the interview that, yeah, when he left, he promised Russell T. Davies he wouldn't um, do anything to damage the show. 
Um, but I guess by now he's um, it's it's you know, obviously uh, carried on a good long time without him and, and reached kind of great heights of success uh, that he feels that now his comments aren't going to do it any damage. Um, yeah, um, yeah, I, I can see that point of view. But the, with Christopher Eccleston, there's always kind of like been that element of him of sometimes he does come across as like he's got a bit of a chip on his shoulder. Um, certainly when he does the stuff about like, oh, well, having a Northern accent like held me back in my career. Well, to be quite honest, mate, it really hasn't, um, oh. you know, because you are one of the most successful British <laughs> actors going. And yeah, he's a pretty he like, enviable career, hasn't he? Yeah, yeah and he kind of like he—he he was very fortunate in being cast in some key dramas and both film and t- um, TV, like Cracker and Shallow Grave yeah. by Danny Boyle. That really kind of like brought you know regional um, accents back into television where before it had all been pronunciation and that kind of thing. But yeah, it's um, he moans about the whole thing about oh, working in Hollywood and like how like he, oh I, I don't like doing blockbusters and I had a miserable time doing G.I. Joe and Thor. Yeah. And it's like, well, yeah, but you if you didn't want to do it, mate, don't take the money. <laughs> I thought a bit about that as well because he said that... Um Part of the reason he said, well, they'd cast me in what's like a light entertainment role. You think, well, you, you were part of that as well. You know, the, the stories at the time were that he asked for the part when he heard that Russell T. Davis was bringing it back, didn't he? Yeah, um, and he said um, one of the things, he said in a lot of the interviews at the beginning, that one of the things that like really like encouraged him to like put his name forward for the role is because he'd never done anything like that before, and he wanted to... Um, do a lighter role and do something that had elements of um, comedy to it um, you know because he was always known up until that point I think as a very very serious actor yeah uh, in some respects probably a little bit too serious as a little bit too like you take your profession just a little bit too serious compared to other actors but so he wanted to do that something a role with more of a lightness of touch and he, he I remember him saying things like that of that's why he emailed Russell T Davis because he's like that's something that I really want to do and so it seems a bit strange that he's kind of like now turning against that in his comments yeah you see I remember him saying that like he, and he'd never done anything for children or a family audience up to that point so it was it was something to sort of challenge him a little bit um, but I mean I think he seems to exaggerate his Manchester accent in the part. He's, he's more manked as the doctor than he is in interviews. Yeah, yeah. Um, which I remember at the time thing was kind of, it was kind of an odd choice. It wasn't kind of shying away from his, uh, from his northernness in the part, was he at all? No, he wasn't. And I know he kind of like said um, around the time, he said like all the doctors previously had been like very much plummy accents because that's what you got on TV. And he said he was very conscious that he wanted to use his normal accent. Mm. And the Russell T. Davis kind of like threw that in. There's the great line in the first episode, Rose, isn't there, saying like, you know, how come you, you speak like you do? And it's like lots of planets have enough. Yeah. Um, so it is kind of like weird that um, he's kind of like making such an issue of that kind of thing now. Yeah, and obviously as in the wake of having another northern-accented Doctor cast... <laughs> 
Yeah. Um, it's, uh, it's, yeah, it's, it's an odd time for him to say it as well. Because um, uh, Jordy Whittaker's got quite a strong Yorkshire accent and by all accounts he's going to play the part with that as well. From yeah, from what I believe, yeah, from what we're, uh, what little information is leaking out at the moment. Yeah, very little. This this uh, the interview in the the Sunday Times. You, it doesn't obviously doesn't give anything away. There's actually an extended version of it um, on the internet. I think it's the the person that interviewed her's blog, um, and there's a couple more questions in there. Like they've asked her, you know, how long she's going to stay, or is she going to do more than one year? And she just says, I can't say, I can't say. Um, so it's. Uh, yeah, I bought the paper thinking there might be some interesting little insights, but there's there's nothing in it at all. Yeah, <laughs> yeah uh, Chris Chibnall in the um, latest um, Doctor Who magazine is um, it's the same. He's very tight-lipped as well. And um, there's a, another side interview as well with the new producer. Uh, his name escapes me at the moment. But basically, he doesn't give much away either. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> Keeping their cards very, very close to their chest at the moment. Yeah, it's it's good though. I'm I'm pleased about this. It's uh, even the little bits you see. I try not to see any of the kind of set report stuff on Twitter, but the odd picture you kind of scroll past. I haven't seen any aliens or monsters or anything like that. It's it's just been like a long shot of the the cast that we already know, kind of huddled in those big coats. Um, yeah, I think that they were filming in Sheffield recently, weren't they? Yeah. I think those, those are only photos that I've seen um, of them being the TARDIS on a kind of like um, a normal um, estate uh, and them just like walking around. That that's I think that's the only leaked images that I've seen. But again, you kind of like you don't go looking for it, do no. you? Because you don't want to spoil yourself. That's it. That's it. Yeah, it's uh, been much nicer going into Series 11 knowing virtually nothing. Uh, so the other thing that caught my eye this week was um, Sergeant Benton actor John Levine released a video um, which was a, a tour of his hometown of Salisbury uh, in the wake of the, um, the, uh, the, the uh, Russian guy that got poisoned along with his daughter. Did you see this? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> it was, he's taking it, it down now. Uh, um, DVD extra feature that he did. <laughs> I can only imagine what it's like. <laughs> it's it's just incredibly bad taste, really. Um, it is it, this kind of glee that something exciting has happened where he lives, um, and just keeps using the phrase "the soon-to-be-dead Russian." And he sort of you know shows you the the, the restaurant and the pub where they were, and this is where yeah. the soon-to-be-dead Russian was eating and stuff. And it's uh, yeah, very. Uh, just unbelievable, really. He's just kind of walking around with his phone camera and, and talking away, sort of almost in character as Sergeant Benton as well. Uh, <laughs> but as I say, I believe he's, um, I believe he's taking it down. He, yeah, he can't find it anymore. So, uh, <laughs> but the thing with the internet is nothing ever disappears. Truly, um, I'm pretty sure somebody's probably ripped it from somewhere and yeah. and got it saved, ready to for it to pop back up on YouTube yeah. at some point. I'm sure, yeah. It's, uh, but yeah, uh, an odd little thing to uh, to pop up during the week this week. So, uh, without further ado, shall we press play on dinosaurs on a spaceship? Indeed, we shall. Yeah. Um, if you're watching along at home, we will press play in three, two, one. And the Blu-ray star.
ancient Egypt. We've, uh, just finished an adventure with Nefertiti. The thing that strikes me about this, and I was thinking about this the other day, is that this introduction and the way he meets all, it introduces all the characters who are going to be in this episode. It's very Stephen Moffat-like. Um, very similar to what he kind of did at the beginning of the Time of Angels, the Pandorica opens, and the Impossible Astronaut. Yeah. It's almost, I might think that whether he rewrote this beginning. Yeah, maybe to sort of tighten it up a little bit, yeah. Yeah. Here we've got the setup of the um, the peril that's yeah. facing the spaceship about two is it six hours away from hitting Earth. Yeah, that's uh, quite nice. We've got the, the Indian Space Agency here as well. Yeah, nice um, little touch that. Yeah, that um, you know, sort of India is one of the superpowers of the future. Yeah. Um, it kind of like reminded me of uh, Firefly and Serenity that has the um, the language of the future is like peppered with uh, Chinese and Asian words because obviously they are becoming like the dominant business powers and yeah. like obviously in the future um, they will invade our culture like a lot more. It occurred to me there that you could have had a number of adventures with Nefertiti, couldn't he? That's... Uh... Could, could be slotted into that gap, could be a potential big finish spin off series there. When the big finish get Matt Smith, that, that's yeah. a, a shoehorn in there, isn't it? Yeah, they might struggle to get Karen Gillan back, uh, given her profile nowadays with the Marvel movies. Well, not just that, Jumanji, um, yeah, really getting a, the box office as well, so she's a proper big box office star, aren't they? That's it, yeah, I think they've already greenlit a sequel to, to the new Jumanji, haven't they? I wouldn't be surprised, yeah. yeah. It's uh, made an absolute fortune for Sony. Mm. And we've got um, Mark Williams here as uh, Brian. Yeah. An inspired casting. Brilliant, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and, and kind of a big name as well after the Harry Potter movies. Quite a quite a good uh, good piece of casting. To get him back for, to, to get him in two episodes as well for this one and then get him back for Power of Three. That's right, yeah. You won the uh, the Doctor Who magazine's um, uh, best male guest actor, I think, for this. Oh, for this, for this little three, yeah. for seven A, yeah. Kind of well known in in this country as well, I guess, for the Fast Show. It was uh, it was huge when I was at university. Yeah, I I used to love the Fast Show. It yeah. was uh, it was it was a great like piece of comedy, and yeah. um, you don't see it repeated much these days. No, they but, they brought it back for like a, a limited run, and was it was it Mark Williams or John Thompson that, that didn't want to come back? Can't remember now. I think it was um, Mark Williams. Believe right, it was Mark Williams who was the probably the only one of the cast who didn't come back for yeah. those um, those little um, special episodes that they did. Yeah, was it Foster's that brought it back? Like they because they brought sort of Alan Partridge yeah. back, didn't they? And uh, resurrected a few. Um, and they were on YouTube originally, wasn't they? Yeah. But this is it's so much even before the pre-titles here, isn't it? You've uh, he's assembled the team, established the the ship's heading for Earth, and now they're uh, they're on board. 
And uh, this is the start of the sort of kind of the separation, isn't it? Where it's been a few months since he's seen the ponds, slowly kind of uh, weaning them out of his out of his adventures. Yeah, that's a nice like little thing that actually runs through all kind of like five episodes of this mini season, isn't it? Like leading up to obviously Amy and Rory um, leaving in the Angels take Manhattan and how that happens. I like the fact that it comments on it every single like episode. Yeah. Is the, uh, there we go. The first dinosaurs we see. What were they doing in the lift? How did they operate the buttons? <laughs> I don't think you're meant to think no. it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this is the thing with 7A, isn't it? All the titles are slightly different. They kind of get a bit darker with each episode. Yeah, slightly tweaked as well with the, the, the font and the, the, um, the writing as well. Yeah, this has got kind of a reptilian um, kind of uh, look, like a kind of a lizardy skin, hasn't it, to uh, to the Doctor yeah. Who logo there. So you can't get a, a, as much a, a big high concept as dinosaurs on a spaceship. Yeah, you see, it's based on the uh, snakes on a plane kind of title, isn't it? Which it takes the like the movie idea, doesn't it? Yeah, let's do a movie week. It's weird because even by then that film had kind of come and gone and it's not really well regarded, is it? Just no, it's, of, it's, uh, and it, I remember it was quite hyped at the, um, before it came out, yeah. purely due to the trailer. And I think when it actually came out, it wasn't as big a hit as what people expected it to be. But I think Sam Jackson just is known for that line yeah. about <laughs> the, um, the mother the, the, yeah. playing the snakes on a plane kind of thing it's, I think that's the only thing that's kind of like kept in popular culture since then yeah I, I remember at the time kind of I'm reading about an Empire magazine and things that it was um, one of the kind of groundbreaking things it, well maybe not groundbreaking about the movie was that the um, the director was just taking loads of ideas that people would send him on the internet um, so I think that line was something that somebody had suggested online and he, um, it was something that they picked up in the reshoots and put in um, and like you said, become the kind of the defining moment of the whole film. They should have had a cut of the box office then. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think it's reference, is it? But Nefertiti um, reminded me when I watched this that um, in Smile, the, the ship, they find her bust on the... Um, on the ship that uh, has gone to the alien planet. Oh, right. That's something that I missed. I've not rewatched season 10 yet. Um, I did get it on Blu-ray for Christmas, but um, I've not revisited it yet. And I thought this was a nice little touch. Obviously, we're getting the split of the, the characters being split up. And yeah. This was a nice thing of, the, um, of how the engines are powered. Yeah. Because you you just you think the Silurians got quite organic technology, haven't they? So it's uh, it's a nice idea. This is the the beach that um, was used for the Tenth Doctor and Rose's farewell. Oh, is this uh, Bad Wolf Bay? Yeah, um, and also from uh, the ah, the names escape me. The two-parter from Series 5 with the Angels and River Song. Um, Flesh and Stone. Time and, and um, Flesh and Stone. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, that's it. Um, it's the same beach where the ship crashes. This is great when uh, Brian's got the trowel. <laughs> what kind of a man doesn't <laughs> carry a trowel around with him? <laughs> it's that thing of generation, isn't it, who just know how to yeah. do everything and they've uh, got all the tools. It's a, it's a really well worked out part, but not, not kind of too stereotyped. You know, the fact that he's around the house doing the DIY at the beginning as well. Do they ever address the fact that he's not at Amy and Rory's wedding? I don't think so, no. Because I know, I remember um, when they brought in Bernard Cribbins as Donna's granddad. Uh, when obviously the actor playing her dad sadly passed away, they threw a line in his first episode, didn't they? Um, saying that he had Spanish flu. Yeah. He was laid up in flu, Spanish flu or something, and that's why you didn't see him in The Runaway Bride. And I thought that was a nice little thing, but I don't think they ever addressed this. No. To see, like, what we never saw Brian at Amy and Rory's wedding at the end of Series 5. Yeah. I suppose he, 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 he could have been there. and I don't know, actually, you do see the top table, don't you? You do, yeah, but you kinda, it just concentrates on Amy's parents, doesn't it? Yeah. Who, again, um, rather strangely, once they'd been restored after the, the crack in the, the wall had been repaired and everything, we never saw them again, did no. we? <laughs> it's a nice, nice mixture of, uh, they've got the practical effects here haven't they for the T-Rex and the uh, Triceratops later um, yeah the, uh, the Triceratops was a really great uh, um, uh, like real uh, effect yeah compared to a CG one like um, Riddell there uh, climbing over the uh, <laughs> the T-Rex uh, so this is uh, Julian Graves, is it? The, uh, no, it's not Julian. Yeah, is it? By then, he was probably best known for um, being in Sherlock. Yeah, he's Lestrade, and that isn't he. I um, I was reading the uh, the complete history entry for Dinosaurs in a Spaceship before watching this, and there's a profile on him. Um, the actor is it Julian hmm. Graves? Should have uh, should have jotted that down. I assumed I remember it, and I haven't. Um, he um, literally ran away at 15 and joined the circus. Um, Did he? Which, yeah, it's one of those things that's like a bit of a cliche, isn't it? But running away and joining the circus. He actually did it, yeah. Age 15, ran away, joined the circus and became a trainee clown. He doesn't look the type, to be honest. No. <laughs> that's one thing you kind of like, when you're re-watching, um, certainly the Matt Smith era, you kind of like, don't realise how much of manic energy the 11th Doctor had. Yeah. And missed that in a way. Um, as much as I loved how Capaldi played it, um, you kind of like were always, you know, there was always that energetic, madcap kind of performance from uh, Matt Smith that I absolutely, like, adored. Yeah. It, um, I don't know if you've heard the you know these Who Against Guns commentaries. I was listening to this, oh right, the, um, I, I, I read about it. The Stephen Moffat one. Um, he's really good. He's on great form. He's really funny. One of the interesting things um, he talks about. Cause, I mean, people talk about uh, Matt Smith being similar to Patrick Troughton anyway. Um, yeah. 
one of the things that he picked up, he was saying about how when you see Patrick Troughton not as the Doctor, he's quite a handsome guy. Um, when you see him in other roles and things, like in the Avengers, but he kind of totally did everything he could to go against that as the Doctor, so he's disheveled and he's always kind of screwing his face up and, and things like that. He said that Matt Smith did the same thing because he, he, he's, quite, he's quite a handsome guy and everything. But he's always kind of gurning, isn't he, and screwing his face up and kind of playing against that all the time. Um, it yeah. reminded me of that yeah. comment that he made while watching this. But yeah, I wonder how much Capaldi, you kind of pitched his performance. He's, he's much more still, isn't he, and calm. I wonder if that was, you know, the way some of the, the Doctors are a reaction to their predecessor. Yeah, as in I can't play it such a manic way yeah. I mean he has his uh, he has his moments of that mm. um, but it's not constantly like 110% manic mad professor style like uh, Matt Smith like yeah. uh, gone board and again yeah like you say it is like kind of a very much a modern interpretation of how Troughton played it because um, I remember Matt Smith saying that when he got the role um, he was very much inspired by Troughton and he obviously I think he watched Stephen Moffat gave him Tomb of the Cybermen didn't he to watch yeah and that's when it clicked for him that that, that was kind of how to play it because they've both got quite um, a childlike essence to their doctors as well haven't they think about yeah, the, very much. the beginning of uh, Enemy of the World when they arrive on the beach um, and he immediately kind of strips off and runs down into the sea that's that's quite a kind of Matt Smith type thing that he would do as well. Oh, and here we have the new Silurians. This is the same actor, isn't it? It's uh, is it Richard Hope. Who appeared in the previous Silurian uh, two-parter? He played Malachi, which was um, Chibnall kind of got that name from Malcolm Hulk, obviously created the Silurians. Uh, oh, right. And this character, although he's unnamed, is called Blaytal, um, which he got kind of by mixing up the letters from Barry Letts. So it kind of continues that um, that little tradition. That's a nice little touch, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, and Restak, who was in Hungry Earth and Cold Blood, he got from Terence Dix. That one's a bit more of a stretch, I think. Uh, yeah, uh, I don't <laughs> quite see that one. No. These robots look great, don't they? They're just the size yeah, of them, the physicality. David Mitchell and Robert Webb. Yeah. It's a little cameo. Yeah, um, nicely I'm done. I think robots had already appeared in um, Sarah Jane Adventures a couple of times, hadn't they? I'm not sure if they're in that. What, um, what I read was that they were the Roboids in a children's BBC series called Mission 2110 um, which I don't think lasted that long so they had these things lying around I think they're maybe the same guys worked on the effects so they suggested that they use them in Doctor Who so they kind of repainted them and, and made them look a bit more kind of rusty and, and used yeah. uh, and brought them back for this with the same operators that had used them in, in Mission 2110 oh right I looked up that series on YouTube and it's, it's a bit like Crystal Maze for kids serve us on earth and worlds far away 
But out there, somewhere, something went wrong. They returned to destroy us all. Well, almost. The fight back starts here. With you. This is Mission 2110. But yeah, Mitchell. I, I really like um, Mitchell and Webb, particularly David Mitchell. I think he's uh, he's one of the funniest people uh, on TV at the moment. Robert Webb, you don't hear as much of. He was on um, the UK version of Lip Sync Battles last week, which I was just kind of skipping through the channels and found, uh, and he was very good on it. Very funny. Uh, doing his dance skills from the comic relief thing that he did a fair few years back. Yeah. Because won that, didn't he? Yeah, yeah, he was at Let's Dance for Comic Relief, was it? I think he, yeah, he, he I won think the original one. Um, and uh, yeah, he was doing some cool dancing. He's been uh, writing a lot recently, hasn't he? He had a book out, I think, before Christmas. It was kind of like a, a sem- kind of like part autobiography. Yeah, it was all about not, not to be a boy. It? Yeah. Um, I'd be interested to read that, actually. I've got um, David Mitchell's book to read as well. Backstory. I've got I've got quite a backlog of books. So. <laughs> but yeah, I think um, a great great piece of casting to get them in. And then they don't don't really have any modulation on their voices or anything, do they? They're no, just, it's um, kind of like just like playing um, the voice recording, isn't it? Yeah. Which I suppose is a good thing because if you're going to stick too much modulation on them, then you're kind of going to miss the fact that it is them. Yeah. And it might go over like some viewers' heads. So I think we're getting to the introduction of uh, Solomon. Yeah. Played by David Bradley. Obviously, by at this point, more famously known for playing the caretaker in Harry Potter. Filch, yeah. Yeah. And this is only, I guess, a year before he played William Hartnell in An Adventure in Space and Time, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, because this would have been broadcast in 2012, wasn't it? Yeah. So, and then obviously the the year after is the 50th year with, like you say, um, the Mark Gatiss uh, drama documentary. Mm. I wonder if this is what brought them to the brought him to the production team's attention. Potentially, yeah. And he does play a, a quite a nasty piece of work in this, doesn't he? Yeah. Yeah, and very physically different looking to, to how he's, he plays Hartnell as well. He's got a real kind of cruel look on his face and see the scars and everything else. It's kind of like very, very similar to his uh, Game of Thrones character who popped up occasionally and then... Uh, yeah. So he came to a, a bit of a sticky end, didn't he, at the beginning of the last series? Yeah, I didn't want to mention that just in case any of uh, your listeners. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Spoilers. Well, it's been out a year, hasn't it? it yeah, it is. But you always kind of like <laughs> are a bit cut in this day and age with people who like that when they watch stuff and they box set it and stuff. Um, a work colleague of mine um, recently did the whole of seven seasons of Walking Dead. Never done it before. And yeah. it kind of like, I was like, Oh, I better not mention that. And yeah. very conscious <laughs> to say stuff uh, as it was coming up. Or, oh, have you got to that bit where that character dies? You know, <laughs> not put up with it. 
Yes, yeah, was one of the uh, there's there's him, Colin Baker, and Peter Capaldi, isn't there? Who've uh, been in the series as a different character now before they played the Doctor. Yeah, that's right. Quite um, this bit's quite uh, where they you get um, a sense of, of how bad he is. There, he gets the the robots to shoot Brian. Because uh, up to that point they've been played for laughs, really, haven't they? They've not been a not been a great threat. But this, he's he's a really evil character in this, isn't he? he is, yeah, kind of proper. Like it, it's there's not many of these. A lot of these kind of like really evil characters turn up a lot in the classic series, but the mm. new series kind of like really. You know, I don't know if it was a deliberate choice. Kind of shied away from doing this kind of villain. In a way, didn't it? Yeah, I think especially under Stephen Moffat, there was um, you get more of the uh, you know what they call like the Broken Spring stories, um, kind of named after uh, Edge of Destruction, don't you? Where a piece of technology or a robot or something has either taken its program into you know its logical extent, um, you know things like uh, the girl in the fireplace and. The girl who, the empty, uh, girl who oh, the things, yeah. So you don't have out and out villains. Um, whereas this guy's a really, um, as we'll see as the episode goes on, kind of just extremely evil. I remember from the first time watching it, there's um, wasn't kind of sure about the time scales here because the robots say they've been on this ship for two millennia, don't they? Yeah. Um, which is a, a long time, you know. Even no matter how much you're going to get for these dinosaurs, it's uh, two thousand years is a is a big commitment to uh, <laughs> to being on a ship that you can't steer to get them somewhere you can sell them. But then, is it that it was originally? Wasn't it supposed? To, it, it's the little flashback there from the the Silurian guys that they were put it's like it's actually an arc isn't it yeah and that when the Silurians went into hibernation they kind of like rescued some of the dinosaurs in the hope that they'd then be able to repopulate yeah once the big um which was the event of the the moon coming into Earth's orbit once that had passed and so I presume it's Solomon who's just hijacked the ship with the view of selling on the dinosaurs as a for profit. Yeah, I think he brought the robots with him though, because he, he talks about that he picked them up cheap. Ah. So he assumed that he'd he'd come up, he'd brought the, the robots on board with him. Um ah. but yeah, then they say, Oh, you know, we've been on this ship for two millennia. So yeah, I, I remember just kind of being um odd. The, uh, the the doctor gets scanned there by the the valuation device that Solomon's got, um, and it can't identify him. It's a little bit of a reminder. At the end of series six, he decides he's become too big, um, and everyone thinks he's dead by the end of that series because uh, uh, he's apparently been killed at, at Lake Selenko, um, and then Clara's erased him from all the Dalek databanks, hasn't he? So he's kind of Stepping back into the shadows, um, but nothing doesn't really go anywhere. That does it? It's not. Um, no, not really no. And there's a it. 
there's a mini episode on either the Series 6 box set or it might be the Series 7 box set where there's a little mini-sode that they did where it shows the Doctor sneaking into the, the databank to clear the any reference to him like, across the universe. And I think that's the kind of like the last time that they kind of like mentioned that at all. Yeah, especially because by um, by sort of time of the Doctor, he's on the um, oh, what is the planet called? Trenzalore, um, and um, everybody knows he's there, and they've all come to try and get him, haven't they? To uh... <laughs> and even the Daleks remember who he is. So that yeah. kind of like um, I do feel though. Um, that obviously Stephen Moffat probably wanted to go somewhere with that, but I think he's mentioned it in the past that he kind of like had to throw virtually everything and the kitchen sink into time with the Doctor, but he wasn't expecting to because he was genuinely expecting Matt Smith to stay one more year. Yeah. And giving him enough time to support all those plot elements because when you look back at, time with the doctor it is incredibly rushed for a for an hour-long episode and it is as if like suddenly like oh we need to wrap up all these plot lines that we would have actually took a couple of years to do yeah especially the church thing the uh to introduce that new character um and not get sort of madame kavarian or river song back for it, it yeah it, it felt slightly unsatisfying didn't it that was quite a strange one because you would have thought like River Song with her connection to the Eleventh Doctor would have been like an absolute shoe in to do Matt Smith's last episode, and I was yeah. quite surprised when it happened. This is a bit of a, a poor escape plan here, isn't it? Um, getting away on the Stegosaurus. If they just ran, they would have been much further into the ship by now. A lot quicker, yeah. <laughs> Because like, we missed a bit before, before, didn't we? Where uh, the Stegus, the uh, Triceratops, sorry, where um, goes up to Brian and the doctor says, Have you got any vegetable matter? And he goes, My balls. And then pulls out his golf balls. Yeah. <laughs> oh, and then they use them to throw, so like that makes the Triceratops run, doesn't it? Yeah. That's Eventually, the robots, uh, I don't know how they're missing from this kind of distance. Yeah. Well, they've obviously got the same. Um, <laughs> Target gallery is stormtroopers from Star Wars. Yeah. <laughs> Only Imperial stormtroopers are this precise. Yeah, except for when you've got a major <laughs> character. Uh, it's, a cool, uh, it's a cool shot, though, and it's the poster one, isn't it, of the Doctor riding the Triceratops. So. Yeah. It's, uh, and you just can't... Really yeah, it's it's kind of like a little bit of the thing of, like, I think, unfortunately, how... It's a great, like, romp. Um, and you just think, like, kids watching this would have, like, really, like, been going along with this story. Yeah. And we kind of, like, got away from the romps in a way, one in certainly for Series 8. Yeah. Um, with the, the more stern um, 12th Doctor and how that story arc run. Yeah. And obviously the later time slot didn't do the show any favours at all. No, that's it. You've even got the Tyrannosaurus Rex, haven't you, at the beginning of Deep Breath? Yeah. But it's not kind of, uh, you know, an adventure like this. It's And it, it's quite sad, isn't it, because it gets killed. So. Dropping yeah. the uh, goth all back yeah. there. 
<laughs> the thing I like about this, this is um, Saul Metstein's first uh, story as director, I think. The way when the dinosaurs walk, the camera shakes a little bit, to, so you get the impression that the floor is shaking underneath them with the weight of them, and it's a nice touch. This is something that uh, Keith pointed out that I'm going to do the Power 3 commentary with, that all the Chibnall stories have got some kind of a countdown in them. Yeah, um, I've noticed this. Um, there was, I watched a YouTube um, feature from a, a Who channel that kind of like reviewed every Chibnall episode um, and basically says, oh, look, it's another countdown. Yeah. It's like, do you know what? In the course of watching the series, you don't notice it, but then when you yeah. actually look back and think about them, they do all have a countdown. Yeah. It's like, is that going to be your Chibnall trope that he's going to always use, similar to like you know the the tiny whiny stuff that Moffat always used? Is that going to be a, a regular thing, or is it just like does it show that he's it was something that was given to him in the the plot outline when he got commissioned, or is it something that um, he just always thinks of and because he thinks it's exciting and it adds to the episode and I think the one where it really hurts the episode is obviously your next episode which is the power of three which doesn't really need a countdown I don't think yeah I think it's only put in there to accelerate the story to its rushed ending but um, I'm pretty sure you'll comment on that in your next podcast which I'll uh be interesting yeah. to hear. Yeah, because the cubes themselves start counting down in that one, don't they? It's one they'll say I haven't, I haven't gone back to it much. It will, will be interesting to watch again. It should be worth noting as well that, um, as well as obviously these episodes that he did, because uh, he did these two back to back, didn't he? Yeah. He also um, completely wrote the Pond Life um, web miniseries that was five episodes long um, yeah. that was debuted on the website and that was yeah that was in the run up to, to series 7A wasn't it because it sort of um, yeah leads that set up the storyline of Amy and Rory splitting for a time didn't it yeah I remember that they were quite impressive those um, the production values on them like they had they had a bit of a budget didn't they there's the there's the one where the doctors escaping from the Santarons and stuff the other thing you just mentioned about David Bradley, um, something I hadn't realised until I read it in, in the complete history, he was the voice of the Shan Sheath in the Sarah Jane Adventures uh, Death of the Doctor that we mentioned before. Yes, he was. So he's actually been in uh, quite a Doctor Who twice before he then was um, turned up as the first Doctor. Yeah. They were the vulture aliens, weren't they, that were uh, supposedly planning a funeral for the Doctor? They were. I, I loved that. That I thought that was a, a great yeah. episode. Um, the wedding of Sarah Jane was a good crossover with, with David Tennant coming back. And, yeah. Uh, but the um, the subsequent one with Matt Smith obviously excelled it, and it had the added um, element of seeing Joe Grant back. Yeah. Uh, Manning uh, coming back to the show after all that time. They were going to bring uh, if there'd been another season. Um, they were going to bring Sophie Aldred back as ace, which would have been nice to see. Yeah, because her kind of like character is um, kind of like was always left a little bit unresolved, wasn't it? She just kind of like disappears between survival and the TV movie. I know the books, the big finished CDs, yeah. this comic strip. There's about three different um, 
but like conclusions to her story, isn't there? Yeah. The comic strip was the darkest, I think, wasn't it? They killed her off in that. That was. Uh, they did, yeah. I yeah, that was um, that was the, the start of a really good run in the comic strip, as it was leading up to Paul McGann's Eighth Doctor. Mm. Uh, I think it was written by Scott Gray, if I remember rightly. And uh, that was the introduction of uh, villains called the Threshold, which yeah. were kind of like um, a bit that used like time, and they were kind of like a like a separate dimension that they came from. And um, that was a really good run of um, stories in the comic strip for the magazine at that around that time. Yeah, I remember those. Yeah, that was. Uh... Because it was a much bigger deal then, wasn't it? Without Doctor Who on TV, you had the novels and the comics. That was where you got your new, uh, your new stories from before Big Finish. Yeah. Yeah, Big Finish didn't really come around until about, was it 1999 that they started to uh, come I think about? so, yeah. They'd been doing the, um, the Bernie Summerfield ones, but they got the Doctor Who license in 1999. This bit here is uh, Solomon's got um, Nefertiti. Uh, he says this line about breaking her in with immense pleasure. Yeah. That's really Bye. dark. Yeah. You haven't really had that kind of threat, that kind of sexual threat, really, to anyone for a long time. No. After who have you? There was um, there was some aliens that were a bit kind of uh, I don't know, kind of like that around Perry, weren't they? I think everybody was like that round yeah. to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but the only the only th other thing I could think of it's um, the keys of Marinus, isn't it? Where there's that guy, isn't it like a like a caveman type thing who's chasing after Barbara? Oh God, that's gone back a bit. Yeah, um, it's been ages since I watched. It. And do you know what? I don't think I've even watched that on DVD yet. I think um, I've got it, um, but I don't think I've watched that since that came out on VHS. I remember thinking that was this. This is kind of taking it just a, a little bit, even step beyond with a human villain, isn't it? They they make him in, incredibly. There's just nothing, you know. There's no uh, sympathy with him at all. He's pure evil. Um, when he, he describes quite kind of gleefully as well, um, flushing all the Silurians out the airlock, kills the Triceratops just to uh, just kind of show his sure. can in front of the Doctor. Yeah, just to like prove a point. Uh, these uh, velociraptors look great. These, uh, where some of the uh, quite a bit of the effects budget's gone by the look of it when you get so many of them crowding around Riddell. Originally, this character was going to be um, a frontiersman from the Wild West. Oh right. Um, but because the next episode has is got cowboys in it. Um, Chibnall was asked to change it so that's where he got the uh, the kind of big game hunter from this is uh, the doctor calling Brian Pond instead of Brian Williams <laughs> I'm not a Pond <laughs> <laughs> it's another kind of family theme as well it's something I think you get in these Chibnall stories um some more so than others, but all, all the characters in uh, the previous Silurian two-parter were kind of mainly all part of the same family, um, and then the stuff about bringing Rory's dad in, um, and the Silurians to pilot it had to be part of the same gene chain. Yeah. 
it is a little bit of a shame that they brought in Mark Williams as as Rory's dad so late in in the, like their like time in the show. Yeah, um, you do have had a lot of fun with that character, perhaps like during series six. He'd have been a great recurring character, like Will, wouldn't he? Yeah, yeah, in, indeed, yeah. Uh, and it is, um, I know, obviously, because obviously this leads up to, um, you know, Amy and Rory, like, leaving the show. Um, they had that wonderful little coda that they did, um, which, unfortunately, they never got to film, did they, where um, Amy and Rory's, like, adoptive son turns up on the doorstep. Yeah. Of, um, Brian to explain where they've gone. Mm. And there's a letter there. It's kind of like very similar to um, the obviously the last page that Amy wrote for the Doctor in the actual episode. Yeah, but it's it was intended to be filmed for the web, wasn't it? And they just never got round to uh, doing it. Sadly. Yeah, it is. It's kind of partially animated, isn't it? I think it is on the DVD. Yeah, they got into they got Mark Williams into to voice it, didn't they? I believe. Ah, right. I can't remember that well. I'll need to. Uh, need um, to but unfortunately, yeah, they just couldn't get him uh, the time to uh, get it filmed, yeah. which is uh, a bit of an opportunity there. Yeah. Well, like you say, these uh, Velociraptors are very, very good. Uh, yeah. At times, they look a lot better than the ones in Jurassic World. Yeah. Yeah, and I don't know if it's kind of like refreshing or kind of like if it's just, you know, just not, they haven't got the time to do it, but John Riddle as a character doesn't really develop at all. He doesn't kind of like change his attitude to shooting or hunting, yeah. which is kind of, had he been, if there's been a two-parter or something, that they might have like done that as a little character arc for him, and he just kind of like just, he enjoys what he does, shooting animals, and then it's kind of like he just then, obviously, he doesn't change by the end of the story. Yeah, and it was a lot more acceptable in his time than uh, than it is now. Again, one of the things yeah. I read about the the kind of the making of it uh, in the in the original draft, um, Riddell was going to die the next day, so the Doctor visits him the night before to give him one last adventure to thank him because Riddell's previously saved his life. And then he returns him back to Af- the African Plains where he's where he dies. Uh, but that didn't make it to the final episode either. So he gets more of a kind of uh, happy ending with Cleopatra. Who I didn't realise was... Um, yeah, well, God. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I didn't mean that to sound quite the way it did there. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but yeah, I didn't realize she, um, historically, there's no records of what happened to her. She just kind of goes missing. There's no records of her death or burial or anything like that in the way that they are for most of her contemporaries. Yeah, uh, and I, I do like it when they use historical characters and kind of like, you know, they do the, what the, the, what Russell T. Davies deemed as the celebrity historical. Yeah. Because it's a great of like obviously encouraging kids to then look up that character and actually like realise that it is an actual historical character yeah. and obviously we've got this key point here where the Doctor does in some people's eyes at the time something quite controversial yeah yeah he's left that um, kind of dodecahedron thing on the ship so that the 
the missiles will chase Solomon's ship. I remember this causing quite a fuss at the time it was broadcast yeah. on um, like forums um, and on the internet. Yeah, and people. Not that was very cold blooded in doing it, but. Yeah, he's a very evil character, isn't he? And yeah, he, and he's completely irredeemable. And it's like he's not gonna change his ways. No. And um, you know, and again, I think if you're just a fan of the new series, you not have much knowledge of the classic series. You will probably say that that looks very out of character for the Doctor. But there's many a point in the classic series where he. By necessity, he has to effectively kill the villain. Yeah, I think there's um, it's it's a difference between when you have a human or humanoid villain as well, because nobody bats an eyelid when he blows up any number of Daleks or you know Peter Davison's pushing them out of windows and things like that. It's it's the odd time, yeah. like the the infamous uh, Vengeance on Varus, isn't it, when the Sixth Doctor pushes the guy in the acid bath. Um, or when he kills Shockeye. It's with so- the chloroform, doesn't he? Yeah, with the not oh, the, the cyanide on the handkerchief, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. I mean, obviously, those those one those kind of instances are a little bit problematic because he does make a quip afterwards, um, like a James Bond-style quip. But Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's when he kind of blows up non-humanoid aliens... It's not seen as uh, you know nobody bats an eye. Like I say, like he he blows up the uh, the Krillotane even in um, school reunion, doesn't he? Yeah, with the oil. Yeah, um, but it's it's when it's somebody human or human looking. I think that's when it's it's more jarring. Um, but apparently, well, yeah, Steve, uh, sorry, go on. Because the Krillotane were like aliens, but disguised as human, they didn't kind of like really. You know, like you say, people don't bat an eyelid, but when it's an actual human character, there seems to be some, you know, unfortunate distinction of, well, that that's wrong. And, yeah, uh, yeah I don't get the argument at all. You get that with the, um, even like with the, um, kind of, you know, the ratings agency, the people who give films their, their age rating. You can, uh, yeah. so it's like in Lord of the Rings, I think they're, they're either Universal or PG, aren't they? Um, because you only ever see orcs getting their heads chopped off or like kind of limbs hacked off and things like that. So yeah. you can get away with fantasy violence um, on the basis that it's it's happening to kind of an you know some kind of unreal monster. That's right. Yeah, because I remember at the time um, um, there was a bit of controversy because Lord of the Rings, uh, I think it's the first one, Fellowship of the Ring, had a headbutt in it and it got a PG rating. And then Star Wars, I think episode two, had to be cut for the UK because at the time they didn't want to give it a 12 certificate and they had to cut a headbutt out. And there was a bit of things about, well, why allow it in Lord of the Rings? And the reason that was given was that the headbutt was between a human character and an orc in Lord of the Rings, but it was between two human characters Obi-Wan Kenobi and Jango Fett in Star Wars, so therefore the BBSE said that, well, that could be imitated by children. I don't quite get the distinction, but yeah. I can kind of see where they're coming from. 
Yeah. But on top of that, I remember the um, the release of the new series. Um, famously, um, the when they started doing the DVD releases uh, of the Christopher Eccleston show series, um, that the DVD that contained Dalek got a 12 certificate instead of a PG certificate uh, because of the torture scene on the Dalek and the BBFC said that's showing because the Dalek showed signs of distress right that that was the reason it was given a 12 and not a PG because it was showing the effects of what torture does to another sentient being in effect yeah so it's interesting how they kind of like make their decisions that way. Yeah, if you if you tortured an alien and it didn't react, then it's okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or if you just blow up like a group of Daleks, that's fine. You get a use certificate. But if you actually like you know torture just one on its own and it screams out in pain, yeah. that's unacceptable. Yeah, it's, it is odd, isn't it? But yeah, I do remember that that the, on Twitter afterwards. Yeah, there's a lot of controversy. Um, one thing I read was that it was actually Stephen Moffat encouraged that to be in because he wanted to show, like Russell T. Davis did in The Runaway Bride, the effect of the Doctor travelling without companions so much that he'll push things a little bit further. Uh, so I think it was recognised by the production team at the time that it was out of character a little bit um, because it was it was something that Stephen Moffat said, yeah, the Doctor's travelling without the ponds a bit, so he will push things a bit further. Yeah, and that's something I think that obviously the new series kind of like has touched upon, like you say, um, and obviously it famously comes to a head, doesn't it, at the end of David Tennant's time when at the end of The Waters of Mars that he realises that because he's been travelling alone for so long and he's gone a little bit too far mm. that he like needs to travel with somebody and runs away from his fate and then obviously that that brings in the 11th doctor and amy and but yeah they have touched upon that haven't they quite a lot uh, since the series returned about how if he does travel alone without a companion that he could potentially become quite a um vengeful character yeah kind of much more ruthless i suppose it goes back it's probably uh, has its roots in the first Doctor, who kind of, you know, becomes the hero and, and more human over the course of travelling with Susan and Barbara and then Vicky, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah. And obviously, um, you know, you kind of like get where probably Stephen Moffat was coming from when he created the War Doctor, because he, as he kind of said, when he got to the problem of Christopher Eccleston, again, we're coming full circle, yeah. not want to come back to the do the 50th special um, of like he said in an interview I think it was for Doctor Who magazine when I sat down and realised what do I do it has to be the 8th Doctor and then he kind of said well no I can't see the 8th Doctor ever being that vengeful that he would completely wipe out he's not only his own race but the Daleks as well Yeah, and why he then brought the idea in of the war doctor somebody who had been so battered so um like traveling alone for so long and so like just caught up in the whole effect of this 
millions of years war that had occurred between the Daleks and the Time Lords that he then got to that point where he did see that as the final solution and so it's, it's nice the way it all kind of like links in yeah and I think it was just such a brilliant idea uh, a secret incarnation of the Doctor that was was running around in the wilderness years yeah and and getting John Hurt as well who brought oh, well, world weariness yeah. to it as well of somebody who's been battling for all that time did you hear any of the big finish War Doctor box sets yeah I've got the first series uh, which I enjoyed immensely um, but I just haven't yet picked up um, the remaining three box sets yeah they are uh, no, obviously, because John Hurt sadly left us, they've kind of like spun it off now into the War Master, haven't they, with uh, Derek uh, Jacobi? Yeah, you haven't heard any of those yet. Um, no, no, yeah, no. Be interesting to listen to, and there's the the first Time War series with with Paul McGann as well. Um, I yeah, really enjoyed with, those. Um, I'm surprised that they're not going back to. They're going back to pre Time War with the next run of um, box sets for uh, Paul McGann, but I presume they don't want to do too much of the time more yeah yeah they're going back to to, to pick up where um, Doom Coalition Doom isn't Coalition it? that's it yeah I couldn't remember what came after Dark Eyes yeah so because um, those characters are great I love uh, Liv Schenker and um, Helen and, uh, Helen Helen Sinclair yeah yes. um, yeah so it's great and they they've uh, she's become quite big recently hasn't she the actress that plays her um, Helen she's been in a couple of movies I think she was in the Live action Beauty and the Beast. And oh, yeah. I think she's the the kind of enchantress or whatever that that put the spell on the Beast. Oh right, I didn't think much of that Beauty and the Beast uh, film, but um, that that's uh, going off on another tangent. Yeah. <laughs> if you ever do this podcast, I'll I'll rant about that. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, she's uh, yeah. It seems like she's she's kind of um, getting to movies and stuff, which it's uh, it seems to happen, doesn't it, with the um, with some of the big Finnish people? You got like Sheridan Smith. She was kind of quite well known in this country, but she was on like two pints of lager and a packet of crisps, wasn't she? But then she did a, a few um, series of, of big Finnish, and now she's kind of uh, a lot bigger. She's done a few movies and been the main part in some some big dramas on TV. Yeah, yeah. Um, they do. They do have a habit of getting some very good uh, casting, though. A uh, big finish. Yeah. Um, which you know they can't probably pay a lot, but um, they they famously go on about how much you know that they don't pay a lot, but they put on very good lunches, and that seems yeah. to uh, attract a lot of big <laughs> names to them. Yeah, they do get some awesome people on them, don't they? Yeah. David Warner and stuff, he's done a few few ones now. And I think it's easy for some actors because it's literally like you, you just have to go in for virtually a day and you can record, um, you know, like a, a couple of episodes worth of, yeah. um, you know, stories. And obviously, you know, let's hope Tom Baker is with us for a, a damn sight, you know, many, many years. Um, but I know obviously they're there doing a lot of stuff with Tom, aren't yeah. they? Yeah, it seems like really uh, stockpiling it and making it years ahead, aren't they? Yeah, exactly. Uh, but yeah, because famously some of the... Uh, these, is it is it Paul McGann doesn't actually read the scripts before he turns up? I think I read that somewhere. Yeah, he does <laughs> the uh, performance fresh, doesn't he? So yeah. he, he can just basically 
go straight into it. Yeah, so that if you're an actor, there's, there's kind of no costume, no rehearsal. It's uh, <laughs> it's got to be the easiest, uh, one of the easiest gigs. And, uh, well, it's the best gig ever for an yeah. actor, really, isn't it? Yeah. And um, David Bradley as well has reprised the the role of the first Doctor. I haven't heard of any of those yet, but uh, no, it's nice that he's no. continuing his association with the show, with these first Doctor box sets. Yeah, and um, I, I don't mind that. I, I'm, potentially, I might dip into uh, the David Bradley box set, but I'm kind of like still a bit on the fence with the whole John Pertwee ones that they're doing with. Uh, Tim Trillor, I think he's called. Yeah. Um, I'm not convinced of um, totally recasting uh, that, but it's kind of like double standards. It's David Bradley's acceptable because he's been the first Doctor on TV, but yeah. <laughs> I'm not kind of like accepting Tim Trillor because he's he's just done the Big Finish CDs and he hasn't turned up. I don't know if, if they got Sean Pertwee, who... Is becoming more and more like his dad every single day and sounding more and more like John Pertwee. Yeah. Uh, John Pertwee on board, I perhaps might be a bit more um, acceptable of the, the third Doctor stories that they seem to be doing these days. That would be kind of a, a dream story, I think, wouldn't it? Again, Sean Pertwee in as the third Doctor. Uh, I'd love to see that. Yeah. And even if they could get him actually on the TV show as well, that, that would yeah. be a great little uh, nice wink to the audience. Yeah, absolutely. I think Sean Pertwee, he, he put a photo out, didn't he, if, uh, two or three years ago. He, he went as the third Doctor to a Halloween party, I think. He did, yeah. He uh, wore um, virtually his, um, his father's uh, third Doctor costume, didn't he? Yeah, just looked brilliant. Uh, I remember that. He had a, like, a, a bit of a dodgy wig on, yeah. uh, but he absolutely looked the part with the sonic screwdriver, and I think he put it on Instagram, and then it got retweeted everywhere yeah because I think he said it was the original cape as well yeah which I think uh, actually belonged if the story's right actually belonged to his grandfather didn't it ah, John Hurt's yeah. father or was it his great grandfather I think um a couple of weeks back, I listened to an audience for John Pertwee, which is uh, one of the uh, the tour that he did shortly before he died ah right I didn't know about that one which was recorded by um, BBC Radio, and it was put out um, uh, later on. Uh, I think it turns up on um, the BBC Radio 4 Extra occasionally. And he does, uh, John Pertwee mentions that, you know, he wasn't sure about what to wear, and they, he was cast in the role, and then suddenly they said, right, we need some photos, we need to do a press call. And he's like, well, what do I wear? And apparently he turned up in wearing like a frilly shirt and a velvet jacket and he decided to put on his uh, grandfather's like cape and he said that's brilliant yeah keep that and that's how it got into the show brilliant well it's great thank you very much for joining me it was a pleasure it's discussing been, this episode been again. thank you and uh, hopefully we'll speak to you again soon yeah I uh, look forward to uh, hearing some of the uh, other podcasts uh, for the uh, remaining uh, episodes. Next week, Ruth Long is coming back on the podcast to discuss the book, The Missy Chronicles, um, which I really enjoyed that book, so that'll be interesting to talk about. In the meantime, uh, we can find you on Twitter, Jason, as at JangoMac72. That's the one, yeah. Um, I'm at Trap1 underscore. Uh, thanks very much for listening, and see you soon.
Bye. Bye.